So when I was in seminary, they taught me one of the big rules was to never try to preach from more than one passage of Scripture in the same message. But if Easter teaches us anything, it's that sometimes you can break the rules. I'm not Jesus, but I'm going to give it a try. Because there's something odd in Luke's passage of Scripture today, the passage we read from Luke's biography of Jesus. So I'm going to to start there. Then I'm going to talk a little bit from the passage we read from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And then I'm going to come back to Luke's gospel. So the reason I'm beginning in Luke is because Luke is is an odd duck. Um, in in Luke's passage of uh, the the passage we read from Luke, the passage we read from Luke's biography of Jesus, uh, it is it is traditionally called. You may have a Bible that has a footnote or a, um, a heading in it that says the Easter morning appearances of Jesus, but there is no Easter morning appearance of Jesus in Luke. Later on in the, in chapter twenty four, he recounts some of the stories that. He was, he, from witnesses that he obtained from witnesses, stories about how Jesus appeared at other times to other people on Easter morning. But Luke doesn't tell us anything about the Easter morning appearances of Jesus. And that's kind of, kind of odd. And people have speculated why was that. Luke tells us at the beginning of his biography that he had, he had consulted a number of, uh, witnesses. And so some people have speculated maybe the witnesses he consulted just didn't include that part of the story, that that it included the part we heard, but not everything else. So maybe that's what happened. But I think there's a different reason. I think Luke wants us to sit and wonder a moment. See, the other biographies of Jesus are coming to a close. They're wrapping things up. They, they've gotten to the resurrection, and they're pretty much done. So they're going to wrap things up and, and tell us everything. Luke is only at the end of volume one. Luke wrote a second volume called The Acts of the Apostles. Um, and we're actually going to be looking at, uh, at it during April to, to kind of get a survey of the sorts of things that Luke continues the story with. But Luke has the leisure. He can say, look, I'm going to get to that. That's coming up in volume two. But in the meantime, I want you to be like the women. I want you, my listeners, to be like the women and like Peter, to just sit here and wonder about that for a minute. I mean, what does it mean when you go to the graveyard... And there's no body in the tomb. He wants us to puzzle over that. But it's Easter and we have plans, so I'm not going to make you puzzle over it for very long. I'm going to cut to Paul's letter because Paul tells us what it means. Paul gives us an answer to the question, what does it mean that Jesus was raised from the grave, from the dead? Paul tells us in the letter to the Corinthians, that it means a lot. It means that what Jesus did is the start of something really amazing. Paul had been uh, uh, involved with this church. He probably planted this church. Uh, Paul was not one of the original followers of Jesus. Unlike the people we read about in the biographies of Jesus, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul was not one of those he encountered Jesus later. The, the, he encountered the risen Lord Jesus, and it converted him from being a critic of Christianity to being a supporter. And he traveled all around the Mediterranean world, and he planted churches in places he came to. He probably planted the church in Corinth, but he's been gone from there for a while, and they wrote him a letter saying, we've got some questions. And one of the questions they asked was this very question. They said, tell us what the resurrection means. And so Paul answers it. He says it means a lot. He says, if we have a hope in Christ only in this world, in this life, 
we deserve to be pitied more than anyone else. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He says this is why it's important. He, Christ, is the first crop of the harvest of those who have died. See, when Paul wrote this letter, Jesus had been raised about about maybe the year 30, maybe the year 33, but it's the mid-50s. It's been about 20 years, two decades since Jesus was raised. And some of the witnesses, Paul has begun, begun this chapter telling us there are witnesses who, who saw the risen Lord Jesus. And he says the problem is some of them are dying because it's been 20 years. And so Paul's aware that the, the time is running out on this generation. And he, he knows it's not just the witnesses. He knows we all die, that, that our friends and our family have died. And he says, what about them? And his answer is, Jesus was not a fluke. Jesus was the first, but he is by no means the last. He knows it's been 20 years. He knows there haven't been any resurrections since then. But he says, just wait. There's more coming. So he says he is the first of a crop of the harvest of those who have died. And then he explains why. He says, since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead came through one too. In the same way that everyone dies in Adam, so everyone will be given life in Christ. What he means here is that when Adam, our first father, died, when, when he sinned, he unleashed death in the world. That the reason we all die is because Adam somehow unleashed death and it's been running amok in the world. It's been causing all kinds of trouble in the world. And that Jesus came to defeat it. He says, he says, in fact, that Jesus did or will defeat death. But when Paul talks about death, he doesn't just mean what happens when our body quits working. For Paul, he means the thing that Adam let loose in paradise. The reason that this world is not paradise, the reason we turn in the news and we hear about a bombing in Brussels, the reason we've been watching for years a civil war with catastrophic fatalities, the reason we we read about ISIS and all kinds of trouble in the world. But more than that, Paul's talking about death because for Paul, death is the thing that poisons everything. Not just the big geopolitical things, but us. Death is the thing that is poisoning our lives. Death is the thing that poisons our relationships. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and you knew the right thing to say? You knew the thing that would that would smooth things down, everybody would go away happy. But you also knew the thing that would show them who was boss. That would put them in their place. That would let them know that you're not going to put up with any of that. And you knew the right thing to say and you went ahead and you said the opposite. Have you ever have you ever had that experience? Paul says that is death, the thing that poisons not just our our physical lives, but that poisons our relationships, that poisons everything. So Paul says Jesus came not just to undo one bodily death, but the thing that Adam let loose in the world. And the reason is, who would want to be raised from the dead if we just had more of the same to look forward to? I mean, you know, we can endure 70 or 80 years in this world, right? We, we watch the news and we wince. We say, oh, that's too bad. As long as it doesn't affect us, it's, it's just something we can kind of recoil from. But can you imagine a thousand years of that? 
or 10,000 or a million. So Paul says Jesus is not raising people from the dead yet because first he must um, hand over the kingdom to God the Father when he brings every form of rule, every authority and power to an end. He's talking again about this personified force that, that affects the world and, and affects us, that makes things what they should not be. He says, it is necessary for him to rule until he puts all enemies under his feet. And death is the last enemy to be defeated, to be brought to an end. So that's the answer for Paul. The answer for Paul is the resurrection is important, not because it was a fluke, not because it was a one-time thing that will never happen again, but because it is the first of a great harvest. The people we love, the people we grieve, we will see them again. But not yet, because there's more at work here than just restoring human bodies. It's restoring creation itself, restoring the world to the good world that God intended it to be, removing all the things that cause heartache and sorrow and grief. Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has first put all the authorities under his feet. So that's what the that's what the resurrection means. But I think Paul is aware that's a lot to bet on because it can't be disproven, right? You know, if you're of a skeptical mindset, you might be saying, "Well, that's a great that's a great deal because you don't know if it works until you're dead, until everybody's dead, until the end of time as we know it." What a great story, Paul. And I think Paul is sensitive to that, and I think Paul anticipated the argument that a lot of people would make, which is that Christianity is pie in the sky by and by. And that's why he put this passage at the end of his letter. It's not the beginning. It's a footnote tacked on at the end. Paul says, if for this life only we have faith in Christ... What does that mean? Except we do have faith in Christ for this life, but not just for this life. Paul says we have faith in this life. And so the bulk of this letter from chapter 1 to chapter 14, he's talking about everyday nuts and bolts reality and the way that faith in Christ, the resurrection of power of Jesus Christ living in us makes a difference in our lives. How many of you have been to a wedding where the preacher stood up and said something about uh, love being patient and kind, love enduring all things, hoping all things, believing all things. Do you remember that? Paul talks about that because love matters. Paul knows that our relationships are what make life worth living. And he says love can be better. Love can be more real because of Christ working in our lives, not someday when we get to heaven, but right now here on earth, right now in our parenting and as we relate to our parents, in our marriages, in our neighborhoods, Paul talks about nuts and bolts reality. He begins the letter talking about community because he knows the world is a mess. And it's better if the world is a mess. If you've got people who have your back. He says, until Christ comes, people are going to still die. People are going to get cancer. People are going to go to jail. People are going to go to the hospital. But Christians can be part of a community that is infused with the power of Christ 
so that they don't have to go through that alone. He talks about sex and marriage. He talks about what to do when you hate your job. Paul talks about everyday, down-to-earth, ground-zero reality. And then at the end, he says, but it's not just for this life that we have hope in Christ. There's even better still to come. So Paul would say that we should try out Christianity in our own lives before we jump to the future, the hope of glory that we have. But Paul says more than that, because Paul knows it's not about your moral convictions or your emotions. It's not about whether your heart was strangely warmed, whether you found that somehow your marriage was better than you thought it would be, or you actually are able to get through your your, your lousy job in a way that the, your coworkers look at you and they go, how, how can he do that? Paul says, that's not why you should hope in Christ. He says, if for this life only we have hope in Christ, then we're of all people most to be pitied. But he says this. He says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul doesn't ask us to trust Christianity even because of our own experience, much less something that hasn't happened and won't happen maybe for centuries. Paul says, believe Christianity because of a historical fact. In the year 30 or 33, sometime around then, some women went to a tomb on a morning looking for the man they had seen crucified. They had seen where his grave was, and they went out to the tomb, and it was empty. Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not a belief system. It's not a religion. Christianity is faith that Jesus was raised, and it is based on the historical fact that the tomb was empty. Jesus rose from the grave, and it is on this that all of our hope depends. Try Christianity out in your own life. See if your marriage is better. See if your relationships are better. See if your job is better. See if you are part of a community that loves better. And have hope for the future. But do it not because of a pastor who told you a happy story. Do it because of the historical reality that the tomb was empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Loving and holy God, we give you thanks for Jesus who came to set us free from death, the the thing that is in this world and that sometimes is in us, the thing that makes everything bad, the thing that poisons our world and our relationships. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust what Jesus did, not because of a great story, but because the tomb was empty. And because we then experience your power in our lives, that we would have hope for our future. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.